Blog Talk Radio. No, no. No, but on the 20, 20. Well, even though he won four or five, I don't know. 
But imagine having a ta- walking away from that and having a tax bill of like fifty thousand dollars. That's what ridiculous. You, that, that's criminal. And, and they don't get cash; they get a gold medal. You know, that's unbelievable. You tell me, tell me where, where these things are kind of screwy. Here. Very lopsided, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Oh, California raises taxes on the rich. Fifth highest job growth and first budget surplus in a decade. Kansas cuts taxes for the rich. Zero job growth in the nation's largest budget shortfall. So there you have it. So if you if you tax the rich, everything works good. If you don't, nothing works. Because there's more for everybody else. Now this is an interesting article. We haven't, okay. we haven't read much on this before, no. but, but um, uh, we haven't we haven't talked about this for quite a while. But it might be something to think about because Israel just attacked Gaza again. Uh, been been shooting them up pretty bad lately. Mm-hmm. And no, you don't hear about it in the news. You don't hear about it on Most BBC. Red article at the Washington Post called Israel Savage, Unrepairable Society. Hmm. Wow. The left-wing movement of criticism of Israel is getting more and more mainstream by the second. Everyone is walking the path. Uh, They're just getting there a little later. Washington Post is a hotbed of uh, neoconservative ideas for the last 15 years. Has another article harshly critical of Israel today, written by an Israeli. And guess what? That article, along with yesterday's article by the two prestigious Jewish academics, Call for boycott of Israel are the two most read articles on the Post listing this morning. This uh, one tops the list. Novelist Asif uh, Gabran's article, Confessions of an Israeli Traitor. It turns out that Max Blumenthal's portrait of a right wing Israel, a right wing Israel, was an accurate one. The internal discussion in Israel's more militant, threatening, and intolerant than it has ever been. Talk has trended toward fundamentalism ever since the Israeli operation in Gaza in late 2008, but it recently has gone from bad to worse. There seems to be only one acceptable voice orchestrated by the government and its spokespeople, and being to all corners of the country by a clan of loyal media outlets drowning out all others. Those few dissenters who attempt to contradict it, to ask questions, to protest, to represent a different color from this artificial consensus are ridiculed and patronized at best, threatened and vilified and physically attacked at worst. Israelis not supporting our troops are seen as traitors and newspapers asking questions about the government's policies and actions are seen as demoralizing. Doesn't that sound like uh, the American press? Yep. Facebook pages calling for violence against left-wing wingers, against left-wingers and Arabs, appear frequently. And even when they're taken down, they pop up again in one guise or another. Any sentiment not aligned with the supposed consensus is met with a barrage of racist vitriol. One Facebook group called itself the Shadow Lions discussed how to disrupt a wedding between an Arab and a Jew, posting the groom's phone number and urging people to call and harass him. On Twitter and Instagram, hashtags like 
lefties out and traitor lefties abound. Film director Shira Geffen, who asked her movie audience for a moment of silence to respect Palestinian children killed in an Israeli offensive, was flayed across Israeli social media. Shame. A new and brilliant play by actress Ian Weitzman brings to the stage a selection of the hateful comments she received after wearing a t-shirt bearing the Palestinian flag. One example from the play, if the baby that was murdered was yours, I wonder which flag you would put on yourself. Now step on it and get your ugly head back to your tiny apartment and bury yourself from the shame until you die there alone and maybe in your funeral we will ask the jihad to read verses from the Koran. Wow. Gavron is in, a, is in a Omaha this year. He denounces Netanyahu's Holocaust revisionism and the extrajudicial executions by Israeli law enforcement. What I hear and read from Israel leaves me appalled. Again, led by, led by politicians from the right with the perplexing um, support of members of the supposed opposition, such as Yar Lapid, when then circulated by the sensationalist mainstream media, there has been a unified demonization of Palestinians and Israeli Arabs. One recent poll by the newspaper Madrid, I believe that's Madrid, Madrid, uh, M-A-A-R-I-B, found that only... 19% of Israeli Jews think about Arabs opposed to the attacks. Most opposed to the attacks. Most Arabs, oh, most Arabs opposed the attacks. The past week, the trend uh, reached its absurd peak when Prime Minister Benjamin Yahu ridiculously claimed that Hitler decided to annihilate the Jews only after being advised to do so by Jerusalem Mafati Ham Amin al Hasarini the leader of Palestinian Arabs at the time. Unbelievable. There have been calls to kill attackers in every situation, in defiance of the law or any accepted rules of engagement for the military. Lapid, for example, said in an interview, don't hesitate. Even at the start of an attack, shooting to kill is correct. If someone is brandishing a knife, shoot him. Minister of Public Security Gilad Ardern also gave his blessing to the notion. And the head of the Jerusalem Police Department, Moshe Edry, announced anyone who stabs Jews or hurts innocent people is due to be killed. Knesset member uh, Yin Magal tweeted that authorities should make an effort to kill terrorists who, attack, who carry out attacks. Such sentiment has led to incidents like the death in East Jerusalem of Fadi Allo, suspected of a knife attack, but shot by police as they had him surrounded. Sometimes it backfires. This month, a Jewish vigilante near Haifa stabbed a fellow Israeli Jew who he thought was an Arab. Late Wednesday, soldiers killed an Israeli Jew who they mistook for a Palestinian attacker. The low point so far was that Sunday night's lynching of 29-year-old Eritrean asylum seeker Hafto Zarhum. These events are symptoms of Israel's soul sickness. The cumulative effort of this recent mindless violence is hugely disturbing. 
We seem to be in a fast and alarming downward swirl as a savage, unrepairable society. There is only one way to respond to what's happening in Israel today. We must stop the occupation. He understands that Israel is an isolated, militaristic society. No matter how many soldiers we put in the West Bank or how many houses of terrorists we blow up or how many stone throwers we arrest, we don't have any sense of security. Meanwhile, we have become diplomatically isolated and perceived around the world, sometimes correctly, as executioners, liars, and racists. Gavron calls for Israel to end the occupation now because it's destroying Israel. I imagine many liberal Zionists will agree. But how do you just end the occupation? You don't. The Jim Crow South didn't end Jim Crow. You need outsiders to help you. And governments have none, nothing, of course. So that means civil society and the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. And you know, soon maybe the Post will run articles by Palestinians describing their experience. Palestinians calling for BDS, boycott, um, um, divest, and... Um, what and sanctions. Sanctions, right? Boycott, divest, and sanctions. That's what that means. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, I forgot what the S. That's meant. a movement. Yeah. Oh no, I knew that. Yeah. I just forgot what the S meant. Sanctions. 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 Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Mm -hmm. So if it's in the post, it has to be pretty bad.
Bill's Law School at Yale, his year, years as Arkansas governor, and until his entrance into the White House. This yes. is what Dolly Kyle wrote in her book. Yeah, she's an attractive woman, yeah. like, you know, like Jennifer Flowers there or whatever. In 1987, Bill Clinton had had 2,000 sexual partners. <laughs> Dolly said she stated sleeping with Bill after high school and admits Billy was a sex addict. How done by Will Chamberlain, by the way, I uh, was, who, who, was, who had supposedly slept with 20,000 women. Uh, Bill told Dolly... That's ten times more than I've had, which meant Bill had sex with 2,000 women in 1987, which means that number would be even higher by 2016. Uh, and then somebody uh, commented, commented, hey, Dolly, that's some love Bill Clinton had for you. Yeah, really, really. He wanted to be president since high school. Uh, but Bill first confessed his desire to be president to Dolly back in high school began actively pursuing it after summer of 63 uh, when, as an Arkansas delegate to Boys Nation, he had a photo op with President John F. Kennedy in the Rose Garden. Dolly right. wrote that he frequently had heard Bill refer to blacks in the South as... Uh, with the N-word. G-dem, yeah, well, let's say... Uh, everybody knows what the N-word uh, Everybody knows yeah. what the N-word is. But uh, Bill Clinton never used a condom but seemingly was unconcerned because, as he told Dolly, he had a low sperm count. Others reports say Bill Clinton is sterile from the mumps. That's a possibility. But tell me something. If he's sterile from the mumps, how did he get, how did uh, she uh, get, uh, what's her face there? Chelsea? Chelsea? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. It was a marriage of convenience of Bill and Hillary using each other. Well, Hillary's role was financial provider to get Bill's elected president and pursue his addictions to politics, power, and sex. Bill's mother, too, had supported the family financially while his stepfather drank. Dolly wrote, uh, Hillary's role of providing financial security for Billy was part of her motivation for the series of financial crimes, yes, crimes, that she committed over the decades. So Hillary was upholding her part of the deal to get Billy elected president, and after which it would be her turn to be the first woman in the Oval Office. And Bill Clinton called Hillary his warden. Now, well, Hillary kept Bill's nose clean in the public uh, mind and had uh, private investigators tracking Bill and the women he was dating on or attacking because she was riding his coattails to political power, Dolly writes. Hillary needs the power, and she is ruthless. Mm -hmm. Look at that graduation picture. Man. Like she was anorexic there, so Hillary was sweaty and had hairy <laughs> calves and toes. <laughs> oh well. You wanna read that? No. Uh, I'll read that. I can't pass it. Hillary was sweaty and had hairy calves and toes. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> Dolly first met Hillary on the evening of May 28, 1974, at the airport in Little Rock. It was election night, and Senator William Fulbright was running for election. Fulbright was Bill Clinton's champion, giving Bill his first Senate job while Bill attended Georgetown University, supporting him for the Rhodes Scholarship and a teaching job at Arkansas Law School, introducing him to powerful people in Washington and financial backers for Bill first, Bill's first congressional campaign that he eventually lost. I didn't know, oh, con congressional, I didn't know you lost that. 
Dolly describes Hillary as a dowdy-looking woman who appeared to be middle-aged with thick eyebrows that melted together, stretching across her forehead, oh, wearing Coke bottle thick lenses and a misshapen brown a misshapen brown dress that must have been intended to hide her lumpy body. The garment was long, but stopped too soon to hide her fa- ankles and her thick calves covered with black hair. Oh, my goodness. Thick brown sandals did nothing to conceal her wide feet and hair on her toes. Oh, very unattractive. <laughs> Hillary glared at Dolly with hostility. Dolly writes in that moment, I noticed that the women emitted an overpowering... <laughs> oh, God. The woman, that the woman emitted an overpowering odor of perspiration and greasy hair. I hoped that I wouldn't gag when I got in the car. When Bill introduced the dowdy woman as Hillary, Dolly was stunned and thought it was some kind of a sick joke, a woman in a hideous disguise. Well, Bill discarded his mentor, benefactor, Fulbright, when the latter lost his re-election. <laughs> and Dolly writes that along, although the plan had been to go to the Fulbright campaign headquarters when the votes came in showing he was losing, Hillary signaled to Bill and the plan was changed. He would have. He would head back to the airport. Phil told Dolly, "I don't want to be seen with a loser." And uh, Hillary's uh, attempt to carve a political career for herself in the Washington sizzle. Yeah, she flunked the bar exam for Washington D.C. A lawyer and graduate of Yale, Hillary wanted a career in Washington, but she flunked the D.C. bar exam. And Dolly writes that at the time of her meeting. Hillary, for the first time, Hillary was working in Washington, D.C. and trying to become a political force under her own steam. But it was a futile attempt, and Hillary's job with the Watergate investigation ended. Dolly uh, believes Hillary showed the same lack of integrity there that would have later get her into more serious trouble. Hillary was a lesbian. Although this is, these are all things from the woman's book uh, you know, that came out uh, recently. Although Bill did not use the word lesbian, he hinted at it by being by keep by keep referring to Hillary's lifestyle. In March 1979, Bill told Dolly he uh, wanted a child but had a low sperm count. He we need to have a baby so we can appear to be a normal couple. We need to do something serious to take attention off the warden's lifestyle. We asked, he asked Dolly to pray for a baby. Dolly suggested he had a bite. Uh, he had to bite the bullet and sleep with Hillary. Within a year, Chelsea Victoria Clinton was born, and Bill fell head over heels with the little baby. But Hillary felt trapped being at home with the baby and couldn't wait to get back to work. She asked her friend Louise, "Who? how long do I have to stay at home with the kids? And Hillary stayed at home with the baby Chelsea for three months before returning to work. Bill told to Dolly that it was the baby that kept the couple together. Hillary's other attractive qualities. Hillary, this is according to this woman who was Bill uh, Bill Clinton's lover. Hillary resented that she had to buy a dress like, had to dress like Southern women. She visited dress shops but generally didn't buy anything. Dolly also confirmed Secret Service agents' accounts of Hillary's foul mouth, anger toward the White House and Arkansas governor's security detail, and physical abuse of Bill. 
In Arkansas, she had hissy fits and threw dishes at Bill in the kitchen, breaking a kitchen cabinet door. When Bill lost the governorship after one year, Hillary was furious, knowing that she was no longer the state's first lady and had to move out of the governor's mansion and into a tiny house. Dolly writes, Hillary is not a leader. She's a coattail culture who has a litany of jobs with no accomplishments. Having failed as, a, as co-president, failed as senator, unless you are impressed with the bill she introduced to name a couple of post office, failed offices, failed as Secretary of State and as Defender of Women over the past 40 years. Hillary instigated threats on women who had sex with her husband, a serial sex abuser. Dolly's summary opinion of the Clintons. Despite her long 32-year sexual, it's true, love, relationship <laughs> with Bill Clinton, Dolly Kyle was only contempt, uh, has only contempt for the Clintons. She writes, Billy and Hillary Clinton continue to be lying, cheating, manipulative, scratching, clawing, ruthlessly aggressive, insatiable, ambitious politicians who are giving public service a bad name. And nothing about them has changed in the past 40 years, except that they have deluded more and more people. The Clintons and their misled supporters have rewritten history to suit their political agenda, which is to get votes, to get power, to get money, to get more power, to get more money. The Clintons' vicious cycle of intertwining greed and power addictions will have no limit. But unless someone stands up and announces, uh, uh, the emperor has no clothes, ideology, integrity, and love of his country were never involved in a billary quest for the White House. It was always a co-dependent, co-conspiratorial grab for money and power, and more money and more power. And unfortunately for them and for the United States of America, there is never enough to satisfy addicts. And that's how she ended that. And she can, you can see her, those are the ten reasons she dislikes Bill. Uh, it's called, the new book is called Hillary, The Other Woman. Uh, interesting, uh, so well, other people have a similar view of her. Oh, God, yeah. But anyway. Let's see. Meet the billionaire pedophile pal of Trump. Oh, that's always good. Prince Andrew. <laughs> oh, my God. God almighty. Hillary Clinton stands by her defense of 1975 rape kids, rape suspects. Oh, yeah, yeah. She defended a rape, uh, I know rape she guy. Did. Uh, what was that other article? Go up to talk a little bit. Oh, that's the article. Hillary's crib shocks people. Let's see what that is. Got two minutes of this, but I You don't know me, but I paid to get this message on here to warn you. Maybe yeah, you've sure heard. Re- yeah, yeah, yeah. We're here right in front of the White House with our new guest named Allison. Allison. So Allison's going to be playing Candidate Cribbage with us, and you are going to try and guess which candidate has lived in which mansion. First up, we've got what I'm calling the Embassy Estate. Who do you guys think of these candidates has lived? Yeah. You really got to see this visually. Yeah. If you want to look at it, where would people go to? YouTube? It's right on YouTube. Yeah, YouTube. Hillary's Cribs Shock Young People. That's the name of it. It shows where people, where she's lived, all the houses, you know, that she lives in. Uh, 
they've all been nice and you know, they've all been expensive. Yeah. And uh <coughs> so anyway. Da -dee -da -da. And for the most part she hasn't had to pay anything because it's either been on the federal government or state government. Must have been a blow to them when they had to pay their own uh, expenses. Okay. So what else is happening, Leo? Well, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm kind of moving along here, but hang, hang on one second. I just want to. Now, Oklahoma court rules that forced oral sex is not rape if victim is unconscious from drinking. Oh, that's a great story. It's from rawstory.com. Can you imagine? They're kind of a credible group, and uh, this is written by The Guardian. <laughs> All written. Yeah, let's see what this is. This, is, this has to be a Clinton uh, thing. You know what? I don't know. Oral sex is not sex, right? Yeah. Ruling is sparking outrage among critics who say the judicial system was engaged in victim blaming and buying outdated notions about rape. An Oklahoma court has stunned local prosecutors with a declaration that state law doesn't criminalize oral sex with a victim who is completely unconscious. The ruling, a unanimous decision by the state's criminal appeals court, is sparking outrage among critics who say the judicial system was engaged in victim blaming and buying outdated notions about rape. But legal experts and victims' advocates said they viewed the ruling as a sign of something larger, the troubling gaps that still exist between the nation's patchwork of laws and evolving ideas about rape and consent. The case involves allegations that a 17-year-old boy assaulted a girl 16 after volunteering to give her a ride home. The who had, two had been drinking in a Tulsa park with a group of friends when it became clear the girl was badly intoxicated. Witnesses recalled that she had to be carried into the defendant's car. Another boy who briefly rode in the car, car recalled her coming in and out of consciousness. consciousness. The boy later brought the girl to her grandmother's house, still unconscious. The girl was taken to a hospital where a test put her blood alcohol content above 0.34. She awoke as a staff were conducting a sexual assault examination. Tests would later confirm that the young man's DNA was found in the back of her leg and around her mouth. The boy claimed to investigators that the girl had consented to performing oral sex. The girl said she didn't have any memories after leaving the park. Tulsa County prosecuted charged the young boy with forcible oral sodomy. But the trial judge dismissed the case and the appeals court's ruling on 24 March affirmed that prosecutors could not apply the law to a victim who was incapacitated by alcohol. Forcible sodomy cannot occur where a victim is so intoxicated as to be completely unconscious at the time of the sexual act of oral copulation, the decision read. Its reasoning, the court said it was a statute listing several circumstances that constitute force, yet was silent on incapacitation due to the victim drinking alcohol. Would they have the same response if the person were handicapped? 
Is that what they were, you know, the yeah, person were unable to talk or move their arms or legs? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I'm not pleased uh, with yeah, it. Because the ruling had made had him completely gobsmacked. That's a good one. Hmm. So what's what's the consensus on this? I don't know. It's a long article. Don't, don't. If you're drunk, try to stay out of some guy's car, you know, if you're a girl. You know, if you're a guy. And why didn't yeah. uh, her friend go with her to make sure that, you know, there was no one there to protect her? Yeah, everybody was drunk. Yeah. Stupid, you know, so it's like, where you going to go? Uh, don't know, dear. It just seems like everything's out of control. But anyway, let's move on. Pharma CEO gave herself an $18 million raise after hiking EpiPen prices. This is a big story. Everybody's heard about it. It's been on the TV day after day about this. Yeah, last last couple days anyway. But um, just so you know who their name is and uh, what this is all about, hang on a second here until this comes up. Uh, it's a woman. I was shocked. But women can be just as selfish and greedy as men. Hey, Lila, look at, look at uh, Hillary. Yeah. The pharmaceutical company that cornered the market on a life-saving EpiPen and dramatically increased its price over also jacked up the pay of top executives. Between 2007, when Mylan acquired the patent for EpiPen to, two, to 2015, the wholesale price has skyrocketed from $56 to $317 um, per pen, a price increase of $461. Similarly, compensation for Milan CEO Heather Breach increased astronomically over the same time. According to NBC News, Breck went from making $2.453 million in 2007 to 18 uh, million nine hundred thirty-one thousand in two thousand fifteen, amounting to a six hundred seventy-one percent raise over eight years. But Bresh uh, wasn't alone in the windfall resulting from the rising price of EpiPen. Milan President Rajiv Malik uh, saw his base pay increase by eleven percent to one million annually as of two hundred two thousand fifteen, while Milan Chief Commercial Officer Anthony Morio. Uh, got a 13.6% raise, mining to 625,000 years. She's pretty much of a pig, this one, huh? Mm-hmm. I mean, man, come on. You know, she's making uh, $18 million, and the, the, uh, the guy underneath her is making uh, a million? Now, this is pretty... She's a pretty greasy woman, now. It's like Hillary. Millions of people with life-threatening allergies, particularly food allergies, depend on the EpiPen for survival. When used, the EpiPen provides an emergency dosage of uh, epinephrine to the user and uh, inhibiting a potentially fatal allergic reaction known as anaphylaxis from occurring. And the recent cost of the EpiPen also mirrored Milan's stock price increase over the same uh, time period. In the two years after Milan acquired the EpiPen patent, the price increased by a 5% uh, by a five percent rate. In 2009, the price of the EpiPen increased by a whopping 19%. In 2010, 11, 12, and 13, the price went up by another 10% each year, and the price then shot up rapidly from the fourth quarter 
of 213 the second quarter of 216, skyrocketing by 15% uh, in twice twice a year. So you know, they're, they're freaking you know ridiculous here, and uh, they're killing people, absolutely killing people. Uh, so what can I say? Well, what's the state of Michigan's water? Yeah, well, it's not so much, it's, uh, to remember, Michigan Water Wars, Nestle pumps millions of gallons for free out of the, out of, uh, Lake, uh, here, Lake uh, Superior or something, and, uh, free while well, Flint pays for poisoned water. Yeah. Huh. So, unfreaking believable, you know, unbelievable. This is by, uh, Democracy Now!, but, um, as Flint residents are forced to drink, cook, and wash with drink. bottled water, while some, while still paying some of the highest water bills in the country for their poisoned water, we turn to a little-known story about the bottled water industry in Michigan. In 2001 and 2002, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality issued permits to Nestle the largest water bottling company in the world, to pump up to 400 gallons of water per minute from aquifers that feed Lake Michigan. This sparked a decade-long legal battle between Nestle and the residents of Maycosta County, Michigan, where Nestle's wells are located. One of the most surprising things about this story is that in Maycosta County, Nestle is not required to pay anything to extract the water besides a small permitting fee to the state and the cost of leases to private landowners. In fact, the company received $13 million in tax breaks from the state to locate the plant in Michigan. The spokesperson for Nestle's in Michigan is Deborah Muchmore. Yeah, Muchmore for Nestle, very well named. She's the wife of Dennis Muchmore, Governor Rick Snyder's chief of staff, who just retired and registered to be a lobbyist. We speak with Peggy Case, Terry Sweer, and Glena Meneke of Michigan Citizens for Water Conservation. Oh, gee. Yeah. What a sweet deal that is for Nestle, huh? Yeah. Lots of sugar for Nestle. No water for Michigan residents. This is Democracy Now! special, Thirsty for Democracy, the Poisoning of an American City. Well, as Flint residents are forced to drink, cook with, and even bathe in bottled water while still paying some of the highest water bills in the country for their poisoned water, we turn to a little-known story about the... You just read this. Yeah. It's a transcript of what they just said. What a terrible thing. What a travesty that is. Now, this is a list of Nestle's brands I think we should all know and boycott, you know, we really should. Um, right. Cereals. They have Cheerios. Uh, Choc-a-pick. Never heard of it. Yeah. Uh, City Minis. City Minis, Clusters, Cookie, cl cookie Crisps, Crisp, rather. Uh, Crunch. Crunch. Um, Curiously cinnamon. Yeah. These are all cereals. Curiously strawberry. Estralitas. Yeah. Fitness. Forest Flakes. Flakes. Gold Flakes. Golden Grahams. Golden Morn. Golden Nuggets. Honey Stars. Cocoa. Uh, 
Oh, they sell this stuff in different countries. Yeah. Lion, Lion cereal, Milo cereals, Nesquik breakfast cereal, Nestle's corn flakes, and Shreddies. And uh, that's sold in the UK and Ireland. Uh, coffee, Bonka, um, Burundi, Christina, Dolce, Nervous Energy. Dolce Gusto, Echo. Chili. International Roast, Kilma in Peru, Lumidis in Greece, Mountain Blend. Nescafe, Nespresso, Partners Blend, Recoffee, Recore, Restrato. Taster's Choice. Right. Sunrise, Tofa, Zogas, and they also sell water, of course. Wow. It's almost too long. To, this is impossible to read, but yeah. I can't even pronounce half those names. Because they're all they they sell water throughout the country throughout the, all the world, and they have all these different. In the U.S., let's just read the ones that are sold here in the U.S. I, I can't really tell. Yes, they have U.S. Arrowhead. Go straight down, oh. right there. Arrowhead is the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Calistoga is the U.S. Yeah, um, they they also have Poland, Deer Spring, Park. Poland Springs, Deer Park, yeah, uh, Ice Mountain. Um, Montclair Water. Ozarka. Canada. Yeah, Oz Ozarka. Yeah, in the US, US, never heard of it. Probably in the Ozarks. They pull it. Pierre, Perrier Water. From Perrier. They sold to France. Um, you said Poland Spring already in the US? Yep. Pow Wow, Pure Life. Um, Zephyr Hill. Never heard of that either. Yeah. Right at the end. And they sell everywhere. So, anyway, Zephyr Hill, Zephyr, 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 Coca-Cola, beverage, Ovaltine. Ovaltine, sweet leaf tea, yeah. coffee mate, carnation, Alaska milk, um, Nestle's Omega Plus, chilled. can't pronounce any of these. They're all in different countries and names, but the ones you can is Dibs, Dryers, Drumstick, um, Hagen, uh, Hagen Edie, Edie's. Edie's. Yeah. Is on there. Nestle's is Edie's, Hagen does. Oreo. Maxibon, Nivy. Yeah, Oreo, Peter's. Nestle's uh, ice cream. Yeah. Outshine, Push Up, Skinny Cow. Those are all sold here. Savory. And then you have Infant Foods, Cyrillac, Nestlac, Berber, Good Start, Nestogen, Jesus, Boost, Carnation Instant Breakfast. Um, these are just ones in uh, seasoning salt from Maggie, I don't know, Chef. Um, 
frozen for Butoline, Butoni, yeah, Butoni, uh, the the Giorno Pizza, Hot Pockets, uh, Jack's Pizza, Stouffer's, Lean Cuisine, Tombstone Pizza, holy crap. We can't go through all this. They make a million friggin' products, guys. Yeah? Look at this stuff. Isn't that amazing? It is. I mean, there's a thousand products here. Yeah, uh, oh, there's one. Cha- uh, snack Attack. Change, uh, name change to Begging Strips. For your dogs. Dog. Yeah. Uh, dog. Yeah, your Begging Strips. Uh, Frosty Paws. And, uh, yeah, frosty pods. So these are all uh, products. Yeah. Oh boy. What are, what are you gonna do? All Nestle's products, and they're all products that are being used by, you know, and and people are stealing. They're stealing our water, man. <laughs> and the the CEO of that company says human beings don't have a right to water. But apparently he thinks his company does for free. Yeah. And then they can turn around and sell it. Yeah. Well, isn't he a human being? Why would he have a right to it then? Because he's making a twenty bajillion dollars, so he can do it by himself. So he doesn't. He has the right to water. As the chairman of the board, Peter Berek, has explained with his philosophy, with one of the one opinion which I think is extreme, he says, is represented by the NGOs who bang on our declaring, on bang about declaring water a public right. That means, as a human being, you should have a right to water. That's an extreme solution. Since that quote has gotten the widespread attention, Prevec has backtracked, but his company has not. Around the world, Nestle is bullying communities into giving up control of their water. It's time they stick to stand for public water sources. Tell Nestle's that we have a right to water. Stop locking up our resources. That's freaking amazing, huh? Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, this is... These corporations, they're just, uh, they're, these guys are just, I don't know. Now here, now, now this, this one here, this, this has got to kill you. I mean, Nestle pays only $424 to extract 27 million gallons of California drinking water. Now, California is in a severe drought. Uh-huh. How the hell do they get away with paying 524 bucks for this? <coughs> Unbelievable. I don't know, Leo. Well, we have the tail wagging the dog in this country. Oh, we absolutely do. I mean, and until the American population stands up and says, we're not putting up with this anymore, it's just going to keep getting worse. Terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Yeah, in 2013, the company drew 27 million gallons of water from 12 springs in Strawberry Canyon for the brand, uh, apparently by uh, employing a rather impressive uh, ledger domain, ledger, ledger domain, uh, considering the permit to do so expired in 1988. Uh, well, so... But as Nestle will tell you, that really isn't cause of concern since it swears it as a good steward of the land. And after all, that expired permit annual fee has been diligently and 
and that isn't the only water it collects. Another 51 million gallons of underground water were drawn from the area of Nestle that same year. There is another site the company drains from profit while uh, California historic drought rages on, Deer Canyon. Last year, Nestle's, uh, Nestle drew 76 million gallons from the spring in that location, which is a sizable increase over the 213, 56 million gallons under circumstances just as questionable as water collection at the Arrowhead. It, it goes on and on and on. These guys are criminals, man. They're just mm -hmm. absolute freaking criminals. And, uh, you wonder who gets paid off? Yeah, I mean, uh, just all the, all the, just, I, I don't know. I don't know anymore. Uh, Yeah, I just, oh, I, I thought this was interesting. Uh, Virginia House unanimously decides industrial hemp will be legal, overriding the feds. Good for them. If this asshole did it in our state, you know, we'd be out of, we'd be out of the, the debt and the misery we're in now. You know, laying off social workers and laying off health care workers and, you know, the Virginia State House of Delegates has passed a bill that will make industrial hemp completely legal throughout the state, overriding any federal interference. Passed 98 to 0, every delegate jumped on board to seize their right as a state to lead their own destiny. Hemp is one of the most valuable commodities on the planet, functioning as food, fiber, and of course one of the most amazing recreational drugs known to man. Introducing Introduced by Del Brenda Pogue, Republican of Nord, House Bill 699 would change state law and remove a provision forcing hemp farmers to get federal approval before licensing their farm. It also requires the Board of Agriculture and Consumer Services to adopt regulations as necessary to license persons to grow and process industrial hemp for any purpose. If passed through the Senate, Virginia would join a host of States that have already taken the reins to grow industrial hemp. Those states are Colorado, Oregon, South Carolina, Connecticut, Maine, North Dakota, and Vermont have ignored federal prohibition and legalized the production and manufacturing of hemp. No, I didn't know Connecticut. There was no mention of Connecticut anywhere growing hemp. No. No, we've never heard about this. I haven't heard so about it. So I wonder they, who got the... They, 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 they made it, they made it, they decriminalized it, you know, for, you know, possession, but they... I didn't it says anything. legalize the production and yeah, manufacturing yeah. of hemp. So who has the license only, to do that? Uh, only the medical marijuana guys uh, have that. No, this is different. I this know, is hemp. This is industrial uh, hemp. I don't know who has it. I haven't heard that it was even uh, given away. That, uh, Is there any more to this article? I mean, our, our governor said he didn't want to. He didn't want to deal with it. This was this last different. month. In short, this would cut the federal government completely out of the state's hemp policy, as it should be, said Mike Mahari of the Tenth Amendment Center. Indeed, Maharari is right. The United States is founded on the principle of individual states' rights. Unified through a federal system, the states bring their own individuality to the table, and the process has enabled us to continue a just society, though that can be argued since the 
Spoofish Wars on Terror got started. The states' rights are built to supersede federal law. The feds make sure the states keep that right while holding the union together. In accordance with internet and, massive intele and the massive intellectual revolution, many states are waking up at the same time. People in power read the same articles on the value and benefit of hemp and the states that have already gone the distance, including Colorado, for instance, are making huge amounts of tax money off the legal transactions. So, Intelligence is contagious. So, anyway, just thought you'd be interested to know. I didn't know that um, that um, that hemp was legal to grow in this country, in this state. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. It's uh, something new. Excuse me. Uh, looking close to the chart of federal spending. This is interesting. Um, if you look at the entire federal budget, budget. Federal budget only 6% of it goes to education. 6% goes to government. Uh, operations, 6% the veterans' benefits, housing and community services, 5%, health is 5%, international affairs, 3%, energy and environment, 3%, science, 3%, transportation, 3%, labor, 2%, food and agriculture, 1%, all right? Uh -huh. And the military is 57%. So can you imagine what we could do for this country? And it says somewhere within the tiny orange sliver at the bottom of the food stamp program, uh, or rather is the food stamp program that Republicans blame for a budget deficit, <laughs> which is the 1% that they spend on, on food stamps. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Now, this is interesting, too. Causes of death in the U.S. in 2016 through uh, June 15th of this year. Abortion is at 501,325 murders, uh, deaths. So there were more deaths from abortion than anything else? Yep, by double. Heart disease was 282,000. Uh, cancer was 271,640. Tobacco was 160,680. Obesity, 140,938. Medical errors. 115,000 uh, deaths, stroke 61,000, lower respiratory disease 65,000, accidents unintentional 62,000, hospital associated infections 45,000, alcohol 45,900, uh, diabetes 35,000, Alzheimer's disease 42,000, influenza uh, or pneumonia, 25,000, kidney failure, 19,000, uh, blood infections, uh, 15,000, drunk driving, 15,000, unintentional poisonings, 14,580, all drug abuse, 11,479, prescription drug overdose, 6,886, and murder by gun, 5,276. The lowest form of death in the, in the state, in the country. Mm-hmm. Right? You'd think that it was equal to abortion or worse. No. 
proportion was ten times more. And mm-hmm. heart disease. I tried to tell you. What? That um, the murder rate by gun is being exaggerated. Oh, way exaggerated. Yeah, it's true. But at the same time, you know, almost three thousand of those murders were in Chicago alone. Mm-hmm. Fifty-two, fifty-two hundred murders. Two hundred seventy-six. Oh, I guess three thousand were were in Chicago alone. Maybe. I think, um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. There's something I was going to say there. Oh, Olympic athlete doesn't cover her heart, you know, and when they stand for attention, that Debbie, Gabby Douglas there. Oh, yeah. The national outrage. Pentagon loses $6.5 trillion. National silence. Yeah, I knew that they had lost a bunch isn't of money. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. Isn't that something? $6.5 trillion. Yeah. yeah. Terrible, 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 terrible. Red Cross built exactly six homes for Haiti with nearly half a billion dollars in donations. Isn't that amazing, folks? Yeah, what a ripoff that is. Isn't that amazing? American Red Cross here. Or the International Red Cross. The neighborhood of Compeche sprawls up a, st- a steep hillside in Haiti, capital city, Port-au-Prince. Goats wrestle the trash, the trash that goes forever uncollected. Children kick a deflated volleyball in a dis- dusty lot below a lot wall with a hand-painted uh, with a hand-painted logo of the American Red Cross. In late 2011, the Red Cross launched a multi-million-dollar project to transform the desperate poor area, which was hit hard by the earthquake and struck Haiti the year before. The main focus on the project, called LAMICA, an acronym for Creole for a better life in my neighborhood, was building hundreds of permanent homes. Today, not one home has been built in Campeche. Many residents live in shacks made of rusty sheet metal without access to drinkable water, electricity, or basic sanitation. When it rains, their homes flood and residents fill out mud and water. The Red Cross received an outpouring of donations after the quake, nearly a half a billion dollars. The group has publicly celebrated its work, but in fact, the Red Cross has repeatedly failed on the ground in Haiti. Confidential memos, emails from Murray top offices, and accounts of a dozen frustrated and disappointed insiders show the charity has broken promises squandered donations, and made dubious claims of success. The Red Cross says it provided homes to more than 130,000 people, but the actual number of permanent homes the group has built in Haiti is six. After the earthquake, Red Cross CEO Gail McGovern unveiled ambitious plans to develop communities none have ever been built. And organizations from the world, the world have struggled after the earthquake in Haiti, the Western Hemisphere's poorest country. But ProPublica and NPR's investigations show that many of the Red Cross's failings in Haiti are of its own making. They are also part of a larger patent in which the organization has botched delivery of aid after disasters such as Superstorm Sandy. Despite its difficulties, the Red Cross remains a charity of choice for ordinary Americans and corporations alike after natural disasters. One issue that has hindered the Red Cross work in Haiti is an over-reliance on foreigners who could not speak French or Creole. In blistering 2011 memo, the then director of the Haiti program, Judith St. Fort, 
wrote that the group was failing in Haiti and that senior managers had made very disturbing remarks disparaging Haiti and Haitian employees. St. Ford, who, who is Haitian American, wrote the comments included, he is the only hardworking one among them and the ones that we have hired are not as so strong, so we probably should not pay close attention to Haitian CDs. The Red Cross won't disclose details of how it spent the hundreds of millions of dollars. Huh. But our reports show that, that less money reached those in need than the Red Cross had said. Lacking the expertise to mount its own project, the Red Cross ended up giving much of the money to other groups to do the work. Those groups took out a piece of every dollar to cover overhead and management. Even on the projects done by others, the Red Cross had its own expenses, in one case adding up to a third of the project's budget. In statements, the Red Cross cited the challenges all groups have faced in post-quake Haiti, including the country's dysfunctional land title system. Yeah, so it's well, just anyway, like what a, a mess. This is just a big uh, bullshit. It's a long story, very long. They raise more money than any other charity, yeah. and they waste it. Yeah, and you got to go to um, Im Impact. No, the Huffington Post, actually, is where this was. <clears throat> Red Cross built exactly six homes for Haiti, about nearly half a billion dollars in donations. Very sad. But you know what, Leo? We've come to the end of our show. Yes, we are, and, um, you know, it's okay. We're, uh, it was great to, uh, great to cover a lot of ground. So, anyway, uh, join us tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Join us next week, rather. But before you do, listen to this. Why did Clinton just tap a pro-TPP, pro-KXL, a pro-fracking politician to head her transition team? Ken Salazar, the biggest lobbyist schmuck there ever existed in the Democratic that's world. that's who she is? That's who she She's is. She's a now. corporate pawn. She sure is. Filling her coffers huh? with their money. Terrible. Terrible, 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 terrible. I don't know. Well, we go along. We do what we got to do. And in the meantime, we got to go away. So we wish everybody a good evening. And, and uh, good night, folks. Yeah, have a pleasant week. <laughs>